Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. If you're like me, you're bogged down in the tsunami of information online about ecological design, techniques for best practice, and how and what to implement first. There's some articles and blogs that have supporting information and some that conflict, and it's really tough to tell what's right or what's right for you. The truth is, until you have a framework to guide you through all of this noise, more information can just serve to paralyze your progress. And that's why I want to tell you about something exciting that I've been working on with ecosystem restoration camps. We've now put out an online training from 18 of the world's top practitioners in ecological restoration who will walk you through five modules designed to explain the most essential information to get you moving forward on your regenerative project right away. The course covers things like how to identify causes of landscape degradation, restoration of any zone types from wild to agricultural and urban, and most importantly, a step-by-step process on how to gather information from your site to create a customized restoration plan for your unique needs and context. You'll learn from people like John D. Liu, Neil Spackman, Ramis Kent, Lisa Shaw, and many more, including me, Oliver Gaucher, as your facilitator through design criteria. Seeing as most of us need to be social distancing right now, you can work through all five modules from the comfort of your home, or just choose the modules that you would like to take based on your own interests and budget. I'm incredibly proud of this course. It gives you the chance to learn how to restore any piece of land close to your heart, regardless of the setting or climate, and just as importantly, how to create businesses that will fund it. We're now offering a 20% discount until the 15th of April, so reserve your place today at ecosystemrestorationcamps.org under the Get Involved tab. There's also a direct link in the show notes for this episode. Imagine that this quarantine could be the time that you used to create a restoration plan for your land that launches you into amazing action when it's over. Together we can come out of this situation better than ever before. I can't wait to see you on the course. All right, welcome everybody. My guest today is someone that I've followed and looked up to since I first began to learn about permaculture and homesteading. Ben Falk is not only a badass homesteader and a self-sufficiency pioneer, he's also an accomplished designer and consultant, primarily through his company Whole Systems Design. Now for years, I've even had a video tour of his property in Vermont saved on my computer that I watch from time to time as inspiration for what can be done on a small degraded plot if you take the time to observe the context and patterns of the place and are not afraid to fail in your experiments. Ben is also the author of The Resilient Farm and Homestead, a comprehensive manual for developing durable, beautiful, and highly functional human habitat systems fit to handle an age of rapid transition. I mean, with that description, I knew Ben would be the right person to speak to about the need for resilient living systems in this time of unprecedented upheaval in our global society. In this interview, we break down the elements that have to be in place for a system to be considered resilient, as well as the essential things that someone has to understand before they can start to interact with their land in a beneficial way. Ben also talks about some of the practical aspects of homesteading, such as what he's found to be the best bang-for-your-buck enterprises and time investments, which includes some surprisingly simple and basic things. 
We even cover resilience at the community level and dig out some essential advice from Ben's years working with clients to build their own systems and what considerations people often overlook when they first get started. Now, though I spoke to Ben before much of the pandemic lockdown had started in the U.S., this interview has turned out to be very timely for the huge surge in interest all around the world from people looking to reclaim independence from the global economic system and reclaim more self-reliance in reaction to seeing how fragile our support systems really are. A renewed interest in everything from growing your own food garden to repairing common household appliances has grown as more people recognize that there is real value in knowing how to provide for your most basic requirements and being able to care for the needs of your community. On that note, I'll be publishing a special episode like I normally do at the end of a series like this, and for the Modern Homesteading edition, I'll be compiling a lot of the best points and bits of advice from the homesteading interviews, as well as adding a lot of my own learning and experience in starting and working to build homestead and permaculture projects all around the world. So this is your chance. If you have a burning question about starting a self-sufficient life that I haven't answered in these interviews from this series, or that you'd like me to answer specifically, be sure to contact me directly at info at AbundantEdge.com as soon as possible so I have time to answer you in the upcoming special episode. In the meantime, I hope all of you are staying safe and healthy in this difficult time of epidemic. My best wishes to all of you and your families. And now I'll hand things over to Ben. Hey, Ben, thanks so much for making the time to be with me today. How you doing, man? Hey, no problem. Good to be here. I'm doing well. Uh, we're getting some rain coming in and uh, sugar, sugar season, the sap's rising here in last week and uh, winter's coming a pretty early close, it looks like. Yeah, it is over here too in Spain. Uh, I can only imagine what it's like over there. I haven't lived in a cold climate in probably over a decade. But yeah. hey, look, man, like I have been following your content, reading your books and watching your like seminars and stuff for ever since I got started in this field. And I'm really thrilled to talk to you about this. Um, but we're going to we're going to focus today a little bit on the concept of resilience within a homesteading lifestyle, which I mean, I've always looked to your content for answers on this kind of stuff. And seeing as you've been living on your homestead in Vermont for it's over 15 years now. Yeah, getting on 20. Man, so we got a lot of uh, experience and knowledge to draw from. But before we get into that, for people who don't know about what you do and your company, can you give us a little bit about your personal background and how you came to be living this type of lifestyle? Sure. You know, I grew up pretty suburban existence, very, very mainstream Um in Rochester, New York, and um, didn't even have a garden at all. I mean, my, my folks didn't even grow really any food at all or anything like that. Um, not not heating with wood, nothing, just totally suburban. And then um, I went to a school and uh, college at, in Vermont. I had been into like outdoor um, backcountry experiences before that. So definitely like learning to live with less and kind of be creative in your use of resources and, and, you know, not so much live off the land, but, but be in the back country and develop some skills and self-reliance. And, um, and then went to Vermont for college, undergraduate school and took a course with John Todd, which really opened my eyes. Got Bill Mollison's book, took a permaculture course actually in college. Then that would be lucky to have one that was 20, almost 25 years ago or yeah, at least 25 years ago now. And, um, and got into just ecological design, really, in part through John Todd, um, who's a real father in the movement that more people should should check out. He's almost been forgotten as permaculture has gotten very popular, but he's at the roots of it. Um, and yeah, then just 
just went went that way completely and um, ended up on land at a pretty young age at 25 years old. Um, and so just started planting and growing food and, you know, burning wood and, and trying to uh, have my resources come as much from on site as possible. Mm. Yeah, I know that that's what a lot of people sort of aspire to when they think of a homesteading lifestyle. And you've gone a lot further than just creating abundance for yourself and maybe some surplus for your community. You've done a lot of work to restoring what was a very degraded piece of land when you bought it. Uh, let's start talking a little bit about building resilience into our lifestyles kind of through an ever increasing level of health in the land that we have the chance to steward. Uh, give us a little bit of context about what was degraded about the site when you first, uh, once you first got there? Well, like pretty much most of the country and definitely almost all of Vermont and New England, the most of the soil has been, you know, lost and definitely all of it degraded, compacted. Um, Vermont had 2 million sheep here in the state of Vermont, which is like five, four times as many people as there are people now. Um, it was just a super overgrazed, you know, um, eroding very hilly place like so much of the world and um so a lot of you know infertile kind of wasteland types of slopes that are just supporting very sparse amounts of vegetation very low biomass very unproductive and um we just started seeding and planting and uh inoculating you know and putting a lot of, of biologicals down and uh eventually things started catching and uh, then compounding from there. And, and so we've, we've just kept planting and, and grazing too for a while and, and uh, could just kind of just jump on that wave of, of um, a biology that started to, to happen after it was a, a bit of work to get it going. We had to put a lot of seed down to see what really actually wanted to, to be a pioneer on such difficult slopes. Um, some areas weren't so, so difficult. You could just plant, but you do definitely need to care for the plants to really get them going, get a lot of like urine and nitrogen down and um, mulch and organic matter. But um, now it's all about pruning back and cutting everything back because it's just, you know, it's deductive instead of additive. <laughs> That's the stage it's at now. Sure. And that's one of the things I love talking about with people who have been on the land for a while and have seen the patterns of succession from when they were just getting started to now and, and how that changes in the maintenance and the way that they sort of manage the landscape from, from the way that it was. Um, tell me a little bit about some of that process. Uh, before you really knew the ecology very well, where were you drawing a lot of your information or inspiration about what you could do? Because, I mean, like you said, we're very fortunate that the permaculture movement has really caught on and there are a lot of voices and there's a lot of material out there to look for. But you were pretty early into this type of transition of getting back to the land with the intention of restoration. Mm -hmm. Where were you able to find kind of like, you know, an idea of what plants might do well here or might have, you know, X effect that you were looking for? Yeah. You know, I would say... Yeah, there wasn't a lot of resources, especially online, which is where we all turn to now so heavily. Um, Cornucopia, a source book for useful plants, was a big one, albeit most of the plants necessarily weren't necessarily hardy to a pretty darn cold climate that we're in. Um, but that was some ideas. Um, we couldn't really get a lot out of just general permaculture literature in terms of species. A lot of nursery uh, catalogs, just looking at, you know, what are the plants that people will provide to this 
so that, that are hardy here. And then, uh, you know, what fixed nitrogen, what are really vigorous. And then I, you know, I spent a lot of time and, and money too, just procuring those plants and trying all sorts of them. And then pretty early on, about five years into our site development, three, four, five years, we got a very large project where we, we had funding for a year to research by the client all possible regenerative, useful, edible, multifunctional um, plants for this climate, mm. any, any and all. And so we could, we actually were able to hire people to help with that and really just do a ton of fairly primary source research. I mean, not growing, but, but primary after growing and uh, seeing what, what people had made work um, sure. and what people used and had success with. But a lot of people have been doing great work for so long. Plant breeders like Fred Ashworth, St. Lawrence Nursery was a big inspiration. One Green World, um, who is it? Tom, um, Gilbert, I think is his last name. I'm blanking on his name, um, first name right now. But the guy who started One Green World, Northwoods Nursery in, in Oregon, he's been around the world sourcing useful plants. So some of those oikos, um, Canasmus, you know, these, these guys have been doing this work for decades and we turned, we turned to them right at the beginning. Yeah. It's nice that like maybe it wasn't as established as it is now, but there were always people who have been working and sort of cataloging this type of information for a long while back. And it's given everybody a kind of a leg up each time we, we go through another cycle of teachers and, and people mm -hmm. who kind of figure out the details of what they started. Um, yeah. Yeah. So within that, so you know, like we were talking about in the beginning, people are moving and increasingly interested in more resilient lifestyles and understanding that this is inherently connected to the health of the land and the ecosystems in which they interact. Um, what would you give as sort of advice of, of what to look into and how to kind of assess your site and understand the context in which you're operating, what are some of the key things that you, that you either want to gather as data or observe from the land as a starting point for informed decision-making? Well, I think the existing plant communities on the site and then around the site in the general area obviously is big. Um, you know, what grows there and then what used to grow there, uh, as far as you can figure out, talking to people, old, older local folks to find out what the communities, natural communities look like, looked like. Um, and in even before that, you know, you're going back hundreds of years, ideally, and then looking at eco ecological analogs around the world. So what, what grows in similar climates on a different continent, you know, for us, that's what grows in the, on the leeward side of, of, of cold cold climate continents, you know, like what, what grows in South Korea, what grows in Northern Japan, what grows in the warmer parts of Siberia, um, Eastern, Northeastern China, um, you know, similar, similar climates essentially. Um, and, uh, and what are the cultural systems that have evolved in those areas? Because, you know, there's a lot of other possibilities than what we happen to see where we live. Those are, so those are big ones, you know, just kind of the ecological communities research, both locally and, and abroad, that might apply. And, and I don't really put much more um, importance on, quote-unquote, natives and non-natives in that process. I mean, natives are just what happened to have emerged or been dispersed to this area over time. They're not necessarily superior or more adapted. 
they're just again what happens to be there um so like a lot of permaculturists we'll, we we are open to immigrants new you know recent immigrants and and as well as those immigrants that that came over a very long time ago um so that's important too to mention um I don't think the distinction between native and non-native is actually very useful uh, and it's way overplayed. But um, yeah, I'd say those are big ones, you know, and then of course you're, you're looking to catalog and, and kind of understand and assess your slope and soils and uh, microclimates and all of the scale of permanence features of, of the features and processes of the place. Sure. Sure. No, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I'm actually going through the exact same process right now since I only moved here to Spain about seven months ago and I'm in still the process of like identifying certain species that'll do well and getting to know the details of this climate zone, these soil types, the history of this area and what the ecology looked like obviously hundreds if not thousands of years before. But of course, fortunate that, you know, history is pretty well documented in this area and there's still a lot of references and records here. And right. then it, it's just a matter of, of going into detail as it becomes relevant to what it is you're trying to do, it seems. You can't go too in detail on anything. You be, end up becoming an encyclopedia who never dug a hole or planted a tree. Right. There's right. always you a balance have... between action, right? Yeah, that's a big thing. I mean, we, we, I'd rather know half as much and have done a lot more than know, you know, way more and have done a lot less. So we, we tried to put a lot of stuff in the ground quickly. Sure, sure. Because all the research in the world on the computer and in books just it just doesn't doesn't equate to what the reality emerges on the ground. Yeah, yeah. To say nothing of microclimates and all the variables of things that can happen. I mean, let's just get into about how quickly things are changing right now in elements sure. that we normally would not consider as variables in a in a long term setting are all of right. a sudden are kind of up in the air between climate change and you know, whatever toxins or contaminants might happen to be in a place. And yeah, uh, it, it gets a lot trickier. Yeah, I was just going to say, add to what I said before, is like ground, if, unless the knowledge is ground truth, there's not really knowledge. It's just, spec, it's just speculation. Right. And there's a lot. It's a good starting point. Talk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It gives you hints. But, you know, every day I see on social media people posting these things that they're claiming they know because they read it. And it's like, okay, well, now try it, you know, and, sure. and you see if you really know that to be true. Absolutely. So look, one of the, the things that I've seen you uh, publish on in the past is some of the equations. Um, and the one I want to focus on is your equation for resilience, which is resilience equals diversity times redundancy times connectivity times manageability. Let's kind of break those down by elements so that people can kind of understand the relationship and how these all kind of uh, add up, or I guess in this case, multiply up to this larger concept of resilience that we're exploring, starting with diversity. How does that play into the larger concept of resilience? Well, it's kind of in, one, in a simple way, uh, thinking, uh, thinking in terms of lots of eggs in, in a basket rather than, or lots of eggs in lots of baskets versus, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm all your eggs in one basket to put it in terms that is common kind of adage that people know of. So lots of, um, of possibilities for connections, lots of not, and not just in terms of species, but in terms of 
elements too, you know, types of elements in a system, whether it's water systems or infrastructure systems or ways of producing energy or ways of harvesting water. Um, yeah, I, I guess that's how I think of, of diversity. Sure, sure. It's like within, much less likely that any one thing could fail and it be the linchpin that brings everything else down. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yep. And, and many ways of achieving the most important goals, like, um, you know, multifunctionality plays into that. As I've heard someone say, oh, you know, the Holy Grail is having every element do perform seven functions. Mm. You know, everyone loves the number seven. I don't know that that's a specific uh, key <laughs> number. oddly that, specific, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the more the better. You right, know, and right. especially when, when, when needs are very key, like water, you want more than one way of procuring water, that kind of thing. Sure. Well, that leads right into the next one, which is redundancy. Um, talk about how this builds upon diversity and it feeds into resilience. Sure. Well, yeah, I think that's kind of what we just segued right into is, 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 is backups for the most key elements mm-hmm. um, to, to meeting your goals. And those goals vary from site to site, of course. Some are going to be consistent, like you have to have a provision of water and energy and heat in a lot of places. But then some are really going to vary highly because, you know, when it comes to markets, for instance, so like making, you know, the financial picture, making that work is going to be very different from site to site, place to place. But those could also be really key elements to have redundance in. Um, you know, as far as providing an income stream, okay, this crop fails or this service that you provide um, fails. So what else can you do to pay your bills? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I think, just backups in the system. This is how I think of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, like I started working as a maritime engineer and that was something that we were constantly studying at a systematic level is the redundancies for essential systems. Like when you're out at sea, Right. And if your, you know, your water system goes down, there has to be something else out there because you're out in the middle of the ocean and, sure. you know, that kind of urgency gets, gets instilled into you. And then it's really cool to see how these types of concepts, uh, well, in my case, kind of transferred over as I understood ecology better. Um, yeah. The connectivity of all of these things both feeds into, well, is, is augmented by the diversity in the system and assists the redundancy that you've built in. Give me some examples of how connectivity works that way. Yeah. By connectivity, I think that the more linkages between elements in the system is how I would think of it. Mm-hmm. And um, that gets it kind of um, a lot of um, definitions of, of healthy ecosystem that, that ecologists have used. It's not just overall number of species. It's, you know, how and how many way, different ways are, are the species in the system connected. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's really key. Um, you know, thinking in terms of infrastructure systems, for instance, is a, is a very easy way to think of connectivity because it's very simple compared to in biological systems. Right. Um, so, let's see. Like, I have a well pump, and I can supply that well pump from the grid or a battery, which is charged by solar panels, or a generator so mm-hmm. there's there's two well there's three different ways that that well pump can connect to what it needs to actually work mm-hmm. no that's a perfect well, example elements it can connect to there's actually not three different ways there's only the wires going down to to the well pump sure. and that is a, that is a very uh vulnerable as since that is the only way that is actually uh exceptionally vulnerable luckily it's a very durable element because there's not really much to uh 
to cause those wires to fail. But it's a, it's a vulnerable point because it is only one. You can kind of map these things out and say, okay, well, here's only one, one conduit that it all flows through. Mm -hmm. So that's a weak link in the system. Sure. But, and that could be an opportunity to build redundancy or diversity of ways that that same function could be addressed. Of course, using a simplified system like a water pump, but this applies sure. much more into the complexity of, of an ecological setting as well. Yeah. And then you can kind of look at higher orders of backing things up too. Like I have friends and a lot of people who are always thinking um, somewhat simplistically of providing needs. So like I have a friend who says, well, how much, um, how much, you know, uh, gas or propane are you storing to run your generator? You know, especially in the light of this whole pandemic thing, if you're thinking about being able to provide your own needs to keep your freezer cool, for instance, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's like, well, not all that much, but the, the larger focus is to not need electricity to begin with. Right. And, but it's very easy to get locked into, well, I need electricity. So then I need all of this, all of these resources in place to always be making that electricity. Of course, you're a much more liberated situation to not need the electricity to begin with. So putting energy into, to reducing the need for electricity to begin with is going to get you very far a lot of times. Yeah, no, that's another good example. Um, and then, so you wrap this up with manageability that kind of brings it all together. And the way I understand it is that this puts a little bit of a constraint on what it is you can try and attempt because if it, it supersedes manageability, it's getting out of your hands and it's not within your control any longer. How would you explain that one? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, you can set up all these brilliant systems that work perfectly. Think about when you go to a lot of sites, permaculture sites, let's say, or, or places where people are really creative and they have a lot of energy and time and they've got these amazing intricate things happening. But after a while, you realize, okay, is that going to be happening in five years? You're going to be able to keep up with that. And personally, I did a lot of that. I did all sorts of cool things that then couldn't keep up with. For instance, the Jean Payne mound was a sweet little compost heated mound. Mm -hmm. But to keep the pipes from freezing and to keep the pile heated was actually kind of a lot of, of things to do and remember and keep up with. And if any of that stops, the system's not working. Right. So that's a good example of like when it works, if you can keep up with it, it's awesome. But the manageability is the limiting factor to all this. And with enough time yeah. and energy and money, you can make pretty much anything work and all sorts of amazing stuff look like it's happening on site and it would be happening until, you know, one of your family members gets sick or you have to be away for a week or you just sleep in and it was really cold. So that thing froze and then everything locked up until May when things melted, you know, whatever yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah. It just, that's why I'm, I'm most interested in ultimately is the simplest systems that that survive and definitely manageability is for sure the limiting factor to all of it it's not really yeah. design um the ideas of what to do and it's not even in a lot of places physical or energetic resources it's 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 time to to, to keep it going now that's especially true in my context in some parts of the world for sure it is physical and energetic resources and people have all the time in the world or more <laughs> but mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for us in a very for lack of a better term, first world scenario, at least for now, it's going to change for sure. And maybe it's changing quickly now as we speak. Um, it's been that we have plenty of physical and energetic resources. We have so much we don't know what to do with it, but we don't have any time. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, it always comes at the compromise of one or the other, doesn't it? It's hard to have multiple streams in abundance at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, the, the human big beings are the limiting factor in the system and not in our own schedule for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, so compounding on that manageability concept, um, it, it's made me want to ask what in your opinion, and certainly in your experience of all this time of this lifestyle, what are some of the biggest sort of bang for your buck enterprises and time investments on a homestead that you found? Mm-hmm. Great question. Um, because I'm always getting people want to like check off all the boxes of things they saw in my book. They got to have the rice patties. They want to have the champagne. <laughs> yeah, all right. And I'm like, wait, wait, my book, this isn't, this isn't a recommendation to try all this. This is just things I've worked with to see yes. how they work. Yes. It's not a, you're not, it's like, no, a, it's the pattern you want to follow, not necessarily the techniques. Yeah, exactly. And, but people love prescriptions. Oh, this guy did this. So I'm going to do all this. It's like, no, no, it's not going to work that way. It's like making a cake. If you, you find as many ingredients that might possibly work as possible, you put them all together. It's not going to be a good dish, you know? <laughs> um, so, um, but what, um, what have I found? Remind me, I'm just. What are some just, of your biggest bang for the buck or, or best oh, sure. time investments? Yeah. Because it, like you said, yeah. it, it often comes down to time and just manageability of your systems. But well, like I'm, really, really translate into like quality of life and value gained from them. Right. Well, I'm in my greenhouse right now, a little hoop house, a new one that I built last year and I'm seeding and well, I'm weeding right now, which is pretty much what vegetable growing is most of the time. (laughs) But, um, you know, I've got greens coming up, vegetables for sure. I mean, sowing seeds, annual seeds and growing vegetables. And it's funny to say that as the first part of my answer because we're so into perennial crops and I'm talking about the value of annuals, but you know, vegetables are, um, are incredible. And you, you know, you have a, a, a new start at it every single year to have a great vegetable garden. You can grow a ton of food quickly. Um, that's low hanging fruit, salad greens, garlic, potatoes, squash, you know, some of the basics for, for a lot of people are just super easy in our climate. Mm-hmm. No brainer. You can grow, you know, you can pretty much pay yourself 25 bucks an hour to grow squash. I've found, um, you know, with not much time for a lot of food, once you get your system set up. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, I mean, certain trees, certain tree crops, not certainly not all for us, you know, pears, apples, they take a while to bear, but you know, there, there can be very low maintenance in our context and, and quite reliable, especially pears. Opposite that might be like cherries. We grow cherries, but they're, they're not reliable for us. And they they take more time. They're more disease prone. Um, you know, creating water storages in the landscape where, where they make sense is uh, very low hanging fruit to have, you know, ponds, essentially um, swales in places, not, not certainly not everywhere. Those can be a very, you know, overdone, I think strategy that everyone wants to do everywhere um, or a lot of people want to do everywhere, but, but certainly they have many, many applicable places for us. They've been very low hanging fruit, not a lot of earthwork to do a lot of value. Um, not in some places, but definitely early on. And in a lot of places, they've been incredibly uh, high return. Um, greenhouses, you know, sensible greenhouses in our climate go Especially that climate. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, they just go such a long way. Um, wood heat, you know, I think wood heat where you're heating your hot water, you're heating your water and space and can cook on it is 
you know, incredibly high return and, and high resiliency um, and very maintainable and robust and resilient. Um, yeah, those are systems we stick with. I mean, then there's a lot of others, you know, related to health, like just eating well and sauna and, you know, um, other, other systems and elements in the systems. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I could, I could name a whole, a whole lot, but th- those are, I think are a handful of, of good ones. I mean, grazing certain animals can be, if you have the time, um, if you have the space, us, have yeah. the time and space. Yeah. yeah. Um, one and again, it's like so context dependent. It depends on what, you know, what are resources are available, you know, in abundance around you too. Right. Well, so even thinking beyond food and, and sort of sustenance, one of the things that I like that you really advocate for is going all the way to like nutrient density and medicine with mm-hmm. the things that you grow for consumption. Uh, tell me about kind of how that breakdown of like time invested and things that you work to plant I mean, I can, I can imagine that, you know, things like squash and potatoes, I mean, they kind of grow themselves for the most part, but you are only going to get a certain amount of nutrition and, and value from something like that. Whereas I know that, uh, like the, the sea, is it sea berries or sea buckthorn? Yep. Sea berry. And yeah. a few of the other ones that you really advocate for is like high nutrient density, medicinal level foods. Where, like, how does that play in and, and what would you tell people to consider when they start thinking about their gardens and their planting lists as far as it comes yeah. to those categories? Well, I think that's where you, you know, the focus is nutrition, not just calories. And um, some of those plants, you don't need a whole heck of a lot of them, honestly, but seaberry and black currant and elderberry and um, honeyberry to a lesser extent, um, a lot of herbs are in this category as well can be just a, a like your you know a multivitamin and a, and a tonic to have in the landscape that you don't need to to grow a whole heck of a lot of that can just really go a long way in, in nourishing you and, and helping you stay healthy mm-hmm. um, or get healthy um, yeah that's how I think of those I think it's a little over it's a little easy too in some permaculture circles that tends to be a little overdone like you know you're not going to live on on berries you know sure um so that's also important to keep in mind (laughs) calories do play in especially if you're outdoors working a lot yeah i mean don't don't underestimate you know the good old potato and and squash and carrots and kohlrabi and radish and things but um and meat and and um even potentially grains we we haven't done really almost anything with grains but uh, in the right context could be important Another thing that I love that you advocate for is this concept that the same tools that can regenerate a landscape can also destroy it if it's mismanaged. And I think I remember using the, uh, the example of goats when bringing goats onto a landscape, whether forested or pastoral or, or otherwise. Give me some an example like how mismanaging what would seem like a beneficial force on the land can really turn around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, wh- how it can be beneficial, you're saying, or how it can be the opposite? How it can be the opposite based on how it's managed. Sure, yeah. Well, I mean, anything, right? Fire, water, grazing, all of these disturbance mechanisms have been you know, incredibly destructive throughout the world, and they've all been healing as well um, in, in different contexts and different applications. Um, for us, we've seen grazing be incredibly healing, um, not too often be damaging, although 
maybe here and there. I've left chickens in one area a little too long, or I've tended not to leave grazing animals, um, ruminants too long in an area. Um, we've seen water, you know, flood and cause all sorts of problems, not on our site, but we've seen that happen massively, degenerative impacts in the Vermont landscape from flooding. And every time we've seen a huge rain event, it's pretty much always a regenerative thing for us, if not, uh, you know, sometimes very like highly regenerative. And um, that's been probably the biggest striking difference, you know, to watch like a six to 10 inch rain event that flooded and caused hundreds of millions of dollars of damage in our state, um, like be like a good thing for our property. Sure. Um, Hurricane Irene. And and that comes from just harvesting water and having on contour systems and making sure things are are green and and stabilized and have plant roots in them so they don't erode. Um, yeah, it's very simple. And that's, sure, that's building big. organic matter and soil that can take a hit like that and just hold on to it. Yeah, and and in, and harvesting infrastructure mm-hmm. like ponds, you know. Um, yeah, it's been uh, that's been a, that was a huge illustration when we had that historic rain event. Um, yeah, it was incredible to see those videos. Yeah, I mean, it was like, it blew me away because I was like, this thing was not only fine for our site, it was pretty, it was good. I mean, yeah. it, it only damaged this tiny little area of my driveway. I mean, it, maybe maybe it was like half a yard of material I lost that I had to just shovel back into a hole, mm. into a groove. But um, yeah, it was it was a good thing for the property. And, and you know, look at the, around the state and it was incredibly destructive. Sure. Unfortunately, it's the general pattern around the whole world. Like we don't get a whole ton of rain in the Mediterranean landscape that I'm at right now. But we had a a storm just about a month ago that, I mean, coming from living in the tropics before this and growing up in Minnesota and getting those huge like uh, prairie thunderstorms and sometimes even close to tornadoes. This isn't something that I would call a storm at all. And man, the amount of flood damage and erosion that it did on the on the farmland around here is it's just embarrassing <laughs> really <laughs> yeah totally. it's like yeah. man we couldn't yeah. even absorb that thing <laughs> right right yeah it's it's i know and then you get you know when we had a hurricane irene it was six to 12 inches of rain it was a lot of rain but you know they get that every year in parts of central america and sometimes it is catastrophic but sometimes it's not right right you know you go into a monsoonal climate that's like yeah big rainstorm tomorrow you know yesterday whatever (laughs) yeah no this is the season for that it's gonna happen yeah multiple times too um so we talked a lot about like what you need to find out to really understand your context and and have an informed way of starting off your design process and your regeneration plan tell me a little bit about the skills that you think are most important to build uh perhaps during the process but if you can even before so that you know, you kind of hit the ground running on a project like this. Mm-hmm. I think any trades, you know, people that when I, when I have a client or we have students who are coming into this from being an electrician or a plumber, a builder to some extent, um, you know, a welder or a mason. I mean, those people are just going to, you just know they're going to hit it hard and, and they're going to make a lot of good things happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, is what I found. I mean, it's, if they're good with plants too, that helps, but, but really just being, just being a hands-on person and knowing how things go together and how to work with your hands and how, and just kind of having a bit of an engineering mind, um, which comes from working with your hands, honestly, better than anything. Um, that I'd say is, 
really near the top of the list. I mean, ideally, I think in some ways, like the holy grail is like being a bit of an engineered engineer, having an engineering mind, but not in a way where you've lost touch with like the power and potency of living systems and, and respect and sensitivity to how living systems work. Because that does, unfortunately, those don't go hand in hand. Oftentimes, mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. you are an engineer, you really are illiterate with it when it comes to how biology works. Sure. It doesn't have to be that way at all, but it happens to be, and um, for various reasons. But um, I think those kinds of skill sets, if you can put together, you know, hands-on skill, trades, the kind of skills and, and abilities that a tradesperson has with a sense of engineering and, and design and how to um, think through something that doesn't exist into reality and make mm-hmm. it. And then obviously a, an awareness and ability to observe and learn from living systems sure. uh, around you. You know, I think those are some of the big ones. Definitely. Yeah. I was like, from my own experiences, like I had maybe more than 60 jobs <laughs> over right. the last about 15 years in some 20 uh-huh. odd countries, just trying my hands at different things everywhere that I went. And some yeah. of them kind of at the more professional level, others kind of like halfway volunteering, just stepping yeah. in, you know? Yeah. Um, and even some of the most bizarre ones, like being a rodeo clown or a librarian. <laughs> wow. <laughs> like, <laughs> total opposite ends of the spectrum obviously the the more applicable ones like the maritime engineering or uh working with animals and working on farms obviously Mm -hmm. that would that would come in but it seems like you would get a little bit of perspective or a little bit of an understanding about how a system works even just from having seemingly unrelated experience in other things like you said being able just to to think through it and and be like, oh, okay, this kind of relates to that one other thing that I have some reference to from my own experience. And it, it really does play in. And I think people can draw from a very wide variety of skill sets and find a way to make it applicable to this type of lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think another big one is, is any type of, any type of um, skill set where you learn that you have to respond to changing conditions around you and that things aren't on your own schedule. I mean, farmers know that really well. Uh, backcountry climbers and backpackers and whatever it is that you do in the wilderness that yeah, you, you yeah, know, yeah. makes you res- realize that, that it's all about what's the weather and this is what we're going to do now. We're not on our own schedule. We're responding to the world around us. Any things that, that um, any endeavors that, that give you an understanding, a sensitivity to that are obviously hugely important. But I see a lot, a lot of people just completely have a lot of failure because they just don't pay attention to that. Hey, the day just went from 40 degrees to 65. The sun just came out and your greenhouse is frying and you need to walk down and open the door, you know, Mm, or mm. just basic things that, and, and, you know, your seedlings are dried out and they're now dead, you know, cause you just are on your computer or you're reading a book and you're you're not paying attention to that. And uh, that's, that's, uh, that's really common. People think, oh, well, it's on, it's on my schedule for list to do today later. But it's like, no, you know, now it has to happen now, you know? And, right, you lose that uh, window, sure. Yeah, you have to, you, your life has to take its organization from what's happening in the outside world around you and not from just some, mm-hmm. you know, your eye calendar or whatever. So it's a lot of levels of being more connected with what it is you're actually 
dependent yeah. on in a, in a landscape like that. Yeah. And ultimately that's what makes it interesting, you know, definitely. I mean, it's if it wasn't a lifestyle like, and not a job too. Right. It, it's like, thank God it's not like that. I mean, that's, that's the awesome, one of the awesome things about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it is a response. It is, you know, that dance with the changing world around you. But um, it takes a lot of awareness and observation, way more than we're used to raising people to have today. Right. And it's unfortunate that these types of skills are not necessarily built in our upbringings, in our school systems. And a lot of people, I mean, even myself, I've been doing this for a long time. I still feel like I'm catching up a lot with uh, this, this level of connection that is required oh, to yeah. do this. Yeah. Yeah, we all are, I think, to some extent. <laughs> for sure. There's never, ever, we're never done getting better at it you know we could right. always see more you can walk through your garden and you've always missed a hundred things for the five things you saw you know yeah. even a master to say nothing of what's going on out of your line of sight too sure yeah yeah or smell or hear or whatever yeah. well so look you are actually you're in the process of moving now aren't you or you're splitting your time between a larger farm and the homestead yeah yeah no yeah we're not we're not moving um but we're managing a second site. Okay. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about some of the techniques and the lessons that you learned from your 10 acre homestead to the larger full size farm. You said it sits in Rochester, right? Um, yeah, it's in, it's in um, central Vermont, Hancock, Rochester area. Um, and it's, um, yeah, it's just bigger scale, you know, more of a commercial level, like scale of plantings is what mm-hmm. we have in the ground um, there. And um, yeah, just kind of everything we've learned from, from the original site taken to a, to a larger scale generally, yep. say is, is, but also different, you know, it's, it's more agriculture. It's a better quality soil. So some of the stuff we, it's a bit easier of a landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, we wouldn't have learned as much as if we if we hit the ground here originally, because we wouldn't have been forced to, um, you know, because it's an easier uh, place to deal with than the new the new site. Um, although the climate's colder in that location, is it just that yeah. close by? Yeah, it's only half an hour, but yep, the climate's changed quickly in Vermont, and uh, well, no quickly than some places, but sure. no more quickly than some places, but. Yeah, higher elevation, cool, the colder zone, even though it's further uh-huh. south. Um, yeah, so that's just, um, you know, a lot of kind of like semi-commercial scale stuff in the ground growing with that could feed up some businesses down the road if we choose to develop them, especially with like nutraceutical products and things like that. Mm. Very exciting. What's the, what would you say is the overall goal for what you're trying to do there? Well, I'd say same thing, you know, as the original site, regenerate, build soil, build wildlife habitat. We have a lot of like particular, like hundreds and hundreds of plants, um, trees that are in the ground and shrubs really just for wildlife benefit. We do a lot of like wildlife enhancement with like forestry work, clearing, cutting trees, creating openings, um, releasing masting trees like cherry and apple. We've gotten a bit of NRCS conservation service in the u.s grants and and kind of some support and interest in that um yeah we're we're kind of uh doing a lot on the forestry end too man you've got your hands full huh (laughs) well yeah i mean the original site is a lot quieter now you know the original site just has that's an advantage yeah and it's more you know it's more established i mean 
essentially prune stuff back. You know, we're not really planting much in there anymore. Mm -hmm. I've also got pretty into bees in the last five years, especially the last three. So I put a lot of time into the apiary. Nice. Yeah. So look, one more main question that I've got for you and we'll wrap it up. But uh, what advice would you give to people who are just kind of starting out with this on where to set their goals and their vision so that A, they don't overwhelm themselves, but so that they kind of keep their priorities in line with the fact that, you know, even a degraded site, even if it's a healthy site too, is going to need some stewardship of the, the real health underlying the ecology there and maybe not just pushing it for your own production. Well. I guess it just varies from place to place, but everyone, you know, is going to need to build soil um, and harvest water and enhance diversity. Um, I guess I'm not sure, like, a little more specific to that question. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I guess, yeah, for, for people starting out, like, getting into a pretty involved, a very involved lifestyle, but also thinking about the kind of the holistic health of a site not just what it is that they personally want to get sure. out of it. Right, right. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we run into that a lot with our doing our design work for clients. I mean, I think you have to have a, you have to, the starting point has to be what does the site do well, right? The classic Wendell Berry phrase, you know, what will nature, you know, allow us to do? What will nature um, actually help us to do, mm -hmm. you know? the three things i think well, what's nature working against us to do what will it allow us and what will it actually assist in and so always you know we want to be in that last place to how how is how is the natural systems how are the natural systems assisting us you know we know people who decided to start elderberry farm and you know they're on like super well-drained gravelly soil and it's like well you know that's not what that site is really great at doing you know mm -hmm. um, and because they came at it with their business plan first. So you gotta be really careful with business plans. You know, you should probably <laughs> choose a place first, then make a business plan to fit the place. If you have a business plan and you're shopping, well then you have to shop very carefully to make sure the place can really work towards that, that business plan. That's what it's going to be good at doing. Um, so that's the big one, kind of the order of, of operations. Most of the time, a lot of times people get it kind of backwards and they have their, they're well-crafted business plan, but they put it in the wrong place. Um, and then I'd say a huge thing is just time. I mean, it, I think people think they can just kind of layer this into, you know, a side hobby. And sometimes to some extent you can, but usually it's a lot more involved than that. Most of the time when I see it not work for people, it's that they just don't, they don't put enough time into it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or you know, perhaps it, understand from the beginning how much of a time input it's going to be. Sure, yeah. And, and also, they, you know, they're adding it to a job where they commute. And if you have to leave your home every day and commute, nine to five type of job, there's very, only a very special people can make much happen in that situation. I know some. Well, I know one. <laughs> uh, but he's kind of a, a real exception. And most of the time, I mean, if you have to get in your car every morning and leave or more than uh, three days a week, it's really hard to make a whole lot of awesome stuff happen. I mean, you can definitely do some stuff for sure and you can do some amazing things, but if you really want to, you know, make a big goal of it, you know, you, you, the, the people that do that most easily for sure and reliably are the people that work from home, even if they have a full-time job, they don't have to spend their time getting in their car and commuting 
you know, yeah. days a week. Right, right. Because that just, I don't know, that just seems to kill everyone's schedule pretty, pretty quick. <laughs> it's not good for anybody's schedule, regardless of what kind of lifestyle no, you live. Bad for, for everyone and everything. I mean, yeah, nobody wins in that scenario. I mean, it's unfortunate. It's very much the norm. I've lived the, it myself a few CEOs, times. But. The CEOs of, you know, ExxonMobil win, but that's about it. I mean, yeah. It's, it's not good for anyone. I mean, no, for sure. Well, look, uh, Ben, it's been such a pleasure talking to you here. I'm really glad you're able to do this while oh, you're yeah, also man. weeding the greenhouse. <laughs> I am. I'm totally preparing Wait. one bud right now. <laughs> Way to stack <laughs> those functions, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it helps me think, too, you know. I can't oh, sure. I got sure. my stiff rake in one hand. It's not the best raking technique, but it works. <laughs> Holding the well, computer together. Before I cut too much into your gardening time, why don't you tell us uh, so that our listeners can find more information of yours, uh, where they can see some of your seminars, catch your books, and, and, and find your company, Whole Systems Design? Yeah, well, our website, Whole Systems Design, is a good kind of portal, kind of, but we don't update it much anymore. <laughs> uh, everything just kind of going on its own. Um, our YouTube channel has some stuff I try to keep updated. Um, Facebook page. If you want to hear me ranting here and there, Instagram, um, you find Ben Falk, pretty easy to find online. Yeah. I'd say those are just some good, <laughs> some good links. <laughs> Google find them through the normal channels. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Cool. And our All book right. is online. So and the book welcome. is fantastic. I definitely uh, recommend that one highly. Um, Ben, man, thank you so much for taking time. It was a real pleasure talking to you. I look forward to catching up with you now that we have some overlap yeah. in our work now uh, with the ecosystem regeneration camps. I'm looking forward yeah. to collaborating on some projects. You too. And if you find yourself in the Northeast, definitely come by. <laughs> I will if they ever let people travel again. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, man. If they don't, maybe. <laughs> but yeah. Cool. All right. I'll, I'll talk to you sometime soon. Sounds good. Take care, man. Bye. Okay. Thanks. All right, that wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info at AbundantEdge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform, and I'll catch you on next week's show.